by simply praying and, and showing emotional support. And so as she returns, and that's an amazing story. Uh, it's, a, it's a powerful voice for the gospel in what she's doing. So as she returns, let's remember to really pray for her. Uh, oftentimes going back can be as difficult as, uh, as the first time because you think about what you're missing. So, and also, just another note, uh, in the next four weeks we'll be preaching from Ephesians, we'll be preaching together through the first two chapters of Ephesians, so I actually challenge you, encourage you to read these chapters. It does not take long to read a portion of Scripture. So read the chapters and kind of immerse yourself in the chapters as we go through the next month. Uh, Next week, Brent will be preaching from uh, the second half of chapter 1, and then the following uh, Sunday, Chris will be preaching the first half of chapter 2, and then we'll, um, and I'll preach from the second half of chapter 2. We have it divided up like that. But I, I would... Okay, thank you. I would challenge you to immerse yourself. I'm willing to, um, to read those two chapters every day for the next 30 days, or until we, we finish this. Uh, I would challenge some of you to join, all of you, but uh, I would challenge you to join me in reading that. There's something that happens when we kind of consistently read the same passage over and over again, because what it does, it, it suddenly makes it become bigger and bigger and bigger. And so um, join me in that if you wish. Now, uh, to understand Scripture, I think it's often helpful to understand the, the context in which Scripture was written and the uniqueness of Scripture. Uh, I, I love the book of Ephesians. If, if you know anything about how the church was formed in, a, in Ephesus, it is actually one of the central churches in the early church, in the, in the time of uh, the New Testament. It, it was established by Paul, by the way, when he had short hair. Paul established the church when he was shaved bald. Who did I say? Which brother is shaved? Uh, anyway, I've been thinking about it, but in, uh, the Lord is doing it for me. Um, Paul made a vow, and in that he's, and that vow is that he would cut his hair. And I don't, I didn't even research all. There were people who took vows like that, same as the Nazarites took a vow to not cut their hair. There were other uh, Jewish sects who would actually shave their heads as a sign. And so somewhere Paul took a vow, and it, it, it's it, it's really unique. He, he is traveling, and he comes to he is traveling with Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, by the way, another empowered woman and, and, uh, and, and man as well. But they're traveling together, and he has his head shaved, and they stop at Ephesus, and there they meet some people who are interested. And, and that is how the church at, at Ephesus was, built, was started. It was by Paul with the short hair. And, uh, and then uh, later, Apollos came. Remember the guy who came? And he preached with this great power, and he, he preached mightily, and then... And then, but and it was very powerful. But Aquila, he didn't understand everything correctly. So Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and taught him in the full way. And then, just in the very next portion, Paul returns in his, uh, I think, second or third missionary journey. He returns and he said, "Do you guys know the baptism of John, or the baptism of Christ?" And they they didn't know the baptism of Christ. So it was kind of this growing together. And and those things are important for us because. They, they help us understand the context of the scriptures. Uh, what else do we know? What else do we know uh, about Ephesus? Well, in Ephesus there was a temple to the goddess 
Diana. Artemis, Diana. She's a fertility god in the pagan cultures. Uh, by the way, it was, this is the, by the time of Paul visiting there, and his, uh, he spends between two and three years there. So this is not just Paul in his second time coming through and kind of uh, having a week of meetings and going on. He actually lives there. He lives with Aquila and Priscilla, who are tent makers. And he lives with them, and they practice their trade together. And he strengthens the church. And a little later, I want to come back to the temple to Diana. A little later, um, he sends another a young mentor, mentoree, there. His name is Timothy. When Paul writes to Timothy in the books of First and Second Timothy, Timothy is the bishop, or the leader, at the church in Ephesus. And... Uh, it is said that the Apostle John, when, he, uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., roughly 70 years after Christ, the Apostle John took Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, that is not in Scripture. That's ancient church's tradition. Took Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they moved to Ephesus because that was the strongest Christian church, and John became the senior leader of the church. And so when he writes from Revelation, he's been exiled from Ephesus to the Isle of Patmos. These are all just kind of fascinating pieces that make the, the book make more sense. Now, it's all, this is really unique, I discovered. So this, back to this temple of Artemis. Remember, Paul's there, and he's preaching, and, and these, magic, these people bring their books of magic. Many people apparently come to the church. These people bring their books of magic, and they put their books of magic on a pile, and they burn it. And the cost of the books of magic is something like 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, it ticked. Demetrius the silversmith off, right? You read your Bible, Acts 18, 19. It, it ticked Demetrius off, and he began this uproar because when people would come to Ephesus, when uh, people would come to Ephesus to worship Diana. Now, here's the interesting, one of the interesting pieces of it. Diana is, is, a, is the goddess, uh, she's a goddess of fertility, but she's also the goddess that kind of refl- reflects the heavenly worlds. Now, not the stars in the sky, but the kind of the place beyond us. And, and uh, at the place where, where the, she, in some, in some of their religion, held the fate of the mortals in their hands. Um, and, and she's also seen as active in the succession of kings and all this. So she's a really strong uh, goddess. Well, uh, the temple, by, by the time Paul visits there, the temple is the third temple to the goddess Artemis. And there is a long avenue that leads up to the temple. And this is a big thing. The temple is a Colosseum-like area. It, it's, a mega, it's a mega place because it's not a church. But it's a, it, it seats 24,000 people. It can hold 24,000 people. So this is not some kind of, kind of backwoods thing. This is the dominant theme of their world. Again, she's, a, she's the god of magic. The god of the kind of unknown. The god of the heavenly places. That's how she's often described. And, uh, and so r- these people bring their, their books of magic. Apparently these people have been practicing it. And Paul says, burn it. Get rid of it. It's not the way of God. And so they do, and they create this big fire. Demetrius gets mad and creates this riot. And Paul has to leave the city. So that's all kind of background to this. Now, here is a couple things that are really fascinating about the book of Ephesians. So Paul then uh, leaves and, and then... The next thing after he left that, that happens is he writes a letter to them. The letter of Ephes- what, that we know as Ephesians. By the way, he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, and Philemon in prison. And he sent them all back. He sent them to the, uh, from prison. He had a fellow prisoner. 
The man's name was uh, Onesimus. Remember, Onesimus is Philemon's slave. And Philemon, they think, is the bishop at a neighboring city of Colossia. So Paul trusts this runaway slave to take these letters back and and Onesimus carried the letter to, to the book of to Ephesians. Now here's a couple things that are really fascinating that I, I tell you all these things that one of the themes of the book of Ephesians is and one of the words that Paul uses over and over again is mystery. I tell you this mystery. The mystery of God is revealed. And think about the goddess Diana and how these people practice magic. And this is mysterious thing. Now, it's not mystery as in who done it. Like, you know, when you play Clue, you're looking for clues to the mystery. It's not that kind of mystery. The word as is used here, the word mystery means um, a religious secret that is confided only to those who have the right to know. So if you had to be on the in path in the goddess and you had to buy these books and these little statues. You had to buy these little statues. And if you bought one of these little statues when you came to town and worshipped at Diana's, it gave you some kind of inside knowledge into how Diana worked. And it wasn't enough. You had, every time you came back, you had to buy another statue. I mean, that is a really good money-making thing. Kind of like passing the offering bucket in church. But anyway, um, every Sunday, every time you come back, you do this. And, and so the, Paul says, wait. The, the kingdom of God is not this kind of mystery. It is actually being revealed to us. And so th- that's one of the key things. He uses terms that he does not use in other places, like, for instance, revelation, insight, unsearchable, wisdom. And uh, one we want to look at today in this passage is, as well, that these people would have understood very well because of the worship of Diana. <clears throat> uh, another theme is love. By the way, I, I did not know this, but... One-sixth of, of the references that in Paul's letters, uh, one-sixth of the references to agape love are found in Ephesians. This is a church that is known for its love for each other. Now, their bishop, their senior bishop, is exiled to an island in Patmos in uh, about 90 A.D., and he writes back to them. He writes this long letter where he saw into the throne rooms of heaven. It's John. And, in, and when he writes to the seven churches, he writes to the church at Ephesus. And he says, oh, I know your works. You guys have been very eager to get rid of magic and get rid of the bad and make sure that the work of the Nicolaitans is not prospering. But I have one thing against you. Now, we have often heard that. It's in Revelation 2. He says, I have one thing against you. He said, uh, uh, the King James says, uh, you have left your first love. And we have often translated that as they, they lost their passion for God. And that may be the case. Uh, probably a more accurate translation of that is you have stopped loving how you did it first. In other words, there was not that in their search, in their zeal for justice, in their zeal for getting it right, they had quit loving. And that's really easy to do. And, and, and so the, that's kind of the backdrop. Now, let's just read together. Uh, by the way, that serves as an introduction not only for today, but for, as we read through the rest of Ephesians and think about that. Think about how these themes keep coming up. 
And it is not, um, I, I was uh, reading something about the amount of growth that, uh, that the supernatural world or at the search for the supernatural in, in um, black magic is growing in our world today. And how people are dabbling into that because they want to know something about the mystery of what is after this and so on. And, and so their world is not that much different than they are. And, and, and secondly, uh, it is pretty easy for us in our journeys to get so caught up in getting it right that we stop loving. And, and so we're not that much different than they are. Follow along in your copies of, script, of the Scriptures as I read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, through the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So as we look at this, as this passage, I'd like to to suggest to you that God has, number one, blessed us in Christ Jesus. Note how he begins. Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He has blessed us with something. He has blessed us in Christ. And, and we, we often read verses like this and kind of pass over them because we've heard them so much. And we're... Uh, but let's just think a little bit about what it means for God's people, the people of God, the church here at Providence, to be blessed in Christ Jesus. And I, I, I want you to note also, I, I was going to read it differently. I chose not to. But there is one word that is repeated 12 times in these 14 verses. Did anybody catch what the verse word is? 12 times. In. Wow. I thought about titling the sermon, In. I thought you might all get up and walk. Um, but, In. It's, it's one of those words we kind of pass over often, and, but Paul is very intentional in this, and, 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 and he uses it repeatedly in, in just this portion. Other places in, in Ephesians he does. But he, he wants to make the point, uh, this, this point of In. And that it's used 12 times, and the focus is always on in something. Now, when this word in is used, when this preposition is used, it denotes position. 
It does not denote movement. It doesn't, for instance, tell us how we got into that place. But it, de- it denotes the fact that we are in this place. So, so it denotes position. And it, 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 is, it is rarely used with verbs of motion. So you, do, you don't, it's not proper to say in running. Brent uh, is a marathon runner or whatever he does. That kind of, you know, I'm not sure what that is when I see him run down the road. Uh, that was my New Year's resolution. And I've managed to make it one week into the New Year's and not do it yet. But I will. Uh, I, I downloaded the app, but anyway. Uh, okay, so you don't say Brent is... If you say Brent is in running, you, it's a different way to say, than to say Brent is running. If we say Brent is running, it means he's moving. If we say Brent is in the running, it means he's in a place. He's in a position uh, maybe for president. Or whatever. Brent is in the running. It changes the, the way that we think about that, that word. And, and Paul is very intentional. He's telling us we are in Christ Jesus. So it, it's used repeatedly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now I, I, I read that. I've read that for years. Never caught it. But that those words with with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places. What did I just say about the goddess Diana? What is she the realm of? The heavenly places. And Paul is saying, wait, wait. If you thought you were in some special place, this is a really special place. And interestingly enough, in the heavenly places in Christ, with its double, it, it's a, there is a double in there, it's found only five times in the New Testament, and all five are found in Ephesians. And so he's saying, look, you guys have something that those people think they have. Those people who practice magic think they have. But you really have it. And it's forward to us. We have these blessings. What does it mean to have spiritual blessings in high places or in heavenly places? I think we often read these kind of passages and say, oh, yeah, that's nice. But how does it fit tomorrow? What does it mean for me this afternoon? What does it mean? It's nice to know that, but what is it? How does it impact my life? How do I move in this? How do I live with this? Let's see if he gives us any clues about that. And then he talks about us being chosen, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Uh, many people get kind of caught up in trying to think, figure out how predestination works. I don't know. I, I don't, I, I'm sorry to tell you that I don't know how predestination works. He uses this idea that God knows everything. And the only way that this works to say, for God so loved the world that he sent his only uh, son, that whoever believes in him can come to him, John 3.16. And, and then you read this and say, well, there seems to be, he seems to be saying that there are some he chose and some he didn't. By the way, it doesn't say there are some he didn't choose. But it does say that those who are following him are his selected people. And, and I like to think about it like this. Uh, uh, if you are chosen, by the way, this is not like predestination and being chosen in Christ is not like being chosen for a ball team. Okay, so we choose sides on a ball team. By the way, I always was about the seventh, eighth, or ninth person chosen. And I always had to play right field and, uh, and other catching catcher and slow pitch softball, you know, 
a real position of prominence. Anyway, um, and, and you kind of get this sinking feeling. That's not what this is. The, the choosing he's talking about here is not that. It is actually the, the idea that as God, who is not bound by time and who knows everything, knows the choices that we're going to make, puts his finger onto my life and says, I choose Marcus. I put my blessing on him. I place, my, I place these heavenly blessings on him. And uh, I, I, I thought about this then because a little later, and then he, and then he goes through the, 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 the core of the gospel. The, the core of the gospel is that Jesus died for us, for you and me. And when we embrace that, he lavishes his grace. I love that word. He dumps his grace out on us. What does it mean to be lavished on? Uh, Scotty Smith, in his book, Objects of His Affection, tells a story about uh, birthday parties. And he said uh, uh, he once had a birthday party, and, and nothing happened all day. Nobody said much about his birthday, and he kind of walked around during the day and, you know, kind of pushing it down, saying, well, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, and, and uh, he said by the end of the day, he, he, he felt like Eeyore the donkey in, in uh, uh, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's okay. I'll make it, I guess. And he said that night his wife said, uh, oh, by the way, we're going away, and, uh, and I need to blindfold you when we go away. And, and so he takes a, she takes him on this route, and, and he, she walks him in, and he thinks, you know, this nice. And, and he takes a blindfold off, and there's 40 or 50 of his friends. And they all sing happy birthday. And suddenly kind of he, he felt this. And he said, it was so hard. People would walk up to me. And you guys, you know a little bit what this is like. People walk up to you and look you in the face and say, happy birthday. And I just really like you. And people, when you do that to people, they kind of go, <clears throat> Is the weather pretty nice out? Um, uh, we're always, we, we, we become a little uncomfortable when people really like us. And love, we, we understand love, you know, that'll soldier with us through the thick and thin. But when they look us in the face and say, you know, I'm just glad God made you the way you are. I just, I really like you. And it's kind of like this uncomfortable feeling of saying, <clears throat> well, shouldn't we do something else? Um, and in, in a lot of ways, that's what the picture is of this. Is God saying, look, these are my children. I choose them. And there's a reason he uses adoption as a way to kind of reflect that. He's saying, I chose you, child. It's such a beautiful thing. So God has blessed us with, in, in Christ Jesus with, this, in his, with the lavishness of his grace. Uh, so, so how does this fit in our daily lives? How does this work tomorrow or this afternoon? What, what would happen if we live with the reality that we belong to God? All of us have, in our hearts, have this deep desire to belong to something, to feel belonging and purpose, and he gives it this. So, so let's, just, uh, let's just keep going here. And I, I want to particularly focus in then in verse 10. Uh, so he, he lavished upon us, verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known... By the way, uh, he lavishes grace on us in all wisdom and insight. And I think that if we want to be like God, then we need to give grace to other people in wisdom and insight. Because that's how God does it. God looks at Denver and he says, Huh, Denver needs grace in this specific way, which is different than Brent needs it. And when we relate to people... That is what we need to do. We need to think about, this is somebody who belongs to the people of God, and I need to lavish grace 
and love on them in such a way that honors who they are. And, and I, I think that God has this all planned. He lavished, making known to us the mystery of His will. There it is. Making known to us the mystery of His will. The mystery of His will is this, that we belong to Jesus. That we belong to, we belong to and, and it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, Amish or pagan, or whatever differences there are. But what, whoever we are, we can come to Jesus. And in, in that coming to Jesus, we have grace lavished on us in a powerful way. And then he says in verse uh, 9, according to his purpose, oh, here's the purpose of God, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When I read that, I thought, that, that's really fascinating that he says that. He says at the end of, it, uh, of this portion here, he says that 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 we are, are going that, that God has a purpose and a plan to unite everything in Him in the fullness of time. I thought, well, I wonder if that means at the end of the world. You know, it says because we often read it like that in the fullness of time. When the time is right, God will, will make every, unite everything, and that's not what it means. This is really fascinating. This is a really fascinating uh, phrase that Paul uses here. Uh, you could you could substitute words like this. As a, a, a plan, uh, as a, a, let me get the, or as an administration. And, and the, the fullness of time, that word fullness, is sometimes referred to a ship that is filled. Now, not filled with cargo, but with sailors, rowers, and soldiers. In the ancient, in the classical Greek, this word would be used to describe a ship. And in their world, they had sailors, and they had people who rowed the ship. The sailors ran the sails and steered the ship. The rowers sat below and rowed, and the soldiers, so a warship that is, is attacking something, and it needs the full complement of everything. So, so he's saying that, that God has this idea, this plan, that he is going to fill his ship with the perfect people to make to, to, and, and unite everything together so that we're all moving in the same direction. The, uh, if, a, if a sailor's put up sails and they're trying to sail this way and the rowers are rowing the other way and the soldiers are saying, what are you guys doing? And start killing them. You know, it's, just, it's chaos. It, it, the, the picture is that God is uniting the body in such a way that we then take the, His plan into the world. And we, we, but we're united in that. So some of us are this, and some of us are this. It's this beautiful picture. Uh, another time, uh, in other places, it is, it is used um, as, uh, for the New Testament body of believers, which is filled with presence, power, riches, and all the things that we need to make the ship go forward. And, and it struck me that when I, as I was uh, studying for this, that, that God has a plan. He has a plan for His church, but He has a plan for providence. Here's a plan for the way that we work together. And, and Narita and I have been talking about what is, what is our vision? How, how does God want us to move forward? And I think it, uh, this is not necessarily this kind of grand vision, but I think it begins with a number of things. And I think we need to think about these things. I think it begins, if we want to move the ship of God forward, I think we need accountable men. I think we need to be men who are not hidden. Because when men hide, when the... When, if you're a believer and you're in hiding about something from other men, what it does is it robs you of any power to move forward. 
Because you're always worried that someone is going to find out about that thing that you're doing or not doing. So I, th- I and, and again, this is not a hierarchy. I'm not suggesting that the men are on top here. It's, it's about together. But I think it begins, for, for us men, we need to be accountable men who move forward in strength and in power. And the only way to do that is to deal with the hiddenness inside of us. And the first thing that Adam and Eve did gives us a reflection of what we do. They went and hid. I think then we also need empowered women. I was so excited when Linda got up and talked about how she is, is moving into the place that God has called her to work. And, I, and, I, I, and I'm, not, I'm not calling... Uh, I have seen the vision of radical feminism in our world today, and it is uh, uh, destructive. Just as much as hiddenness is destructive in men, so is that. But I am suggesting that women... Uh, that in the past maybe we have not done very well at allowing our women, empowering our women to move into the places that God has called them to be. Whether that's motherhood, which is a high calling, or some other place, which is just a highest calling, if that is where God has called you. See, there is no calling of God that is lower than somebody else's. Onesimus is a slave. He has just as high a calling as Philemon, his master. By the way, Onesimus went back home, and a little later, he becomes the bishop of the church where his own master is in, former master. And that's the picture that Paul wants, the, the calling. But I, so accountable men, empowered women, and, and I think that it's time that the church of Jesus Christ stands up and says, the men, we need to, we need to give space for men to bring their hiddenness in such a way that it's safe. We need a space for women to work in their gifting in such a way that it's safe. And, and then engage young people. Like, I, 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 I look at the children's church. I, much, I you know I like preaching to you, but I sometimes want to preach to the children, too. And I want to talk to them. And, and what is it that will, will it, what will it take for us to embrace our youth and the differences that generations bring? By the way, I realized also uncomfortably that, um, Jerry, how old are you? Yeah, I'm glad Jerry's 55. Okay. I'm 49, and I just took the average age. Jerry and I kind of balance the average age of the church. Balance it, yeah, let's put it like that. But oftentimes, it, it, for generations, for me, I look back, and I, I hear a lot of people in my generation kind of look at the millennials, and they <laughs> I, I choose not to do that. God has brought that generation along with a different space, a different place, a different world, and we need to hear from them. And we need to embrace them. Now we need to help guide them too. But I think that when we can engage young people into church, it allows this kind of fullness to come. Who wants to grow old in a church of old people? Not me. Shoot us now. Anyway. We want young people because they bring something. And so we need to think about that. So accountable men, we need to, we need to create a space where men feel safe at sharing their hearts. And we need to have empowered women, a place where women can operate in the giftings that God has called them. And we need to engage youth. And when, and when we do that, we are actually, we are participating in God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. 
It's such a beautiful picture of us working together as, as we move forward. Now, how does this all work practically? Well, let me just finish by saying, he concludes this portion by, uh, by bringing us back and saying, we have an inheritance. What is the one necessary thing in order to have an inheritance? Come on. You need to be part of the family. Or it's very rare. I, I mean, I, I do have a rich uncle, and, uh, but it's very, uh, you know, we talk about those kind of things. But it's very rare that a family member, uh, somebody outside the family inherits somebody else's wealth. Is this about family? It's about belonging. We kind of return to belonging, saying, we have an inheritance. Now, he, he, um, in the, the King James, we've heard this over the years, he, he has sealed us uh, in verse um, 13. He has sealed us with the promise. He's given us the earnest of the Spirit, sometimes it says. But he sealed us with the Holy Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the earnest, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession. And in their world, if you were a, an, an heir, you received the right to use the family stamp. And the family stamp was put in there, and that said, you're a part of the family, and you will receive the inheritance. Another way, uh, way they would use this is engagement rings. If they were become engaged, that is that guarantee. Um, and so when, when a young man asks a, a, a girl to marry him, uh, she gives a piece of herself by saying yes. And that piece is the guarantee of something much bigger to come. It's kind of like a down payment. Sometimes earnest money comes from this word. We give money to hold it for us. And so when we think about all these things, and we think about the purpose and the plan of God, it is about belonging, it is about the lavishness of His grace, and it is about us working together to build the kingdom of God. And in order to work together, we have to have each other's backs. We have to love and care for each other. And I think the church at Ephesus was a model of love. And as they grew and as they prospered, what happens is they become much more uh, focused on fixing everything around them, and they lose their love. If we, the minute we begin to focus on fixing things, that's God's job. What we have to do is love and enjoy the lavishness of His grace. It's about being a part of something bigger. So how does this work this week? How do we practically apply portions of Scripture like this? Well, I would suggest that there are ways that we do that. First of all, I think that you should um, try and experiment. Every day this week, uh, and it's often the hardest with the people we're closest to, and every day this week, try to, um, try to think about the people that you live around, that you work with, the people that are in your house, um, and, and think about them as being about being chosen by God. Uh, maybe what they do will not annoy you quite as much. But think about them as being chosen of God. And think about pouring out lavish grace on the people in your life who hurt you, but also the people who love you. And think about being, be, being a part of a group of people who actually begins to like each other. And say, you know, you're different than I, but I really like the difference. I like that you like that. And then think about being what it means to be a part 
of a much, something much bigger, and we begin to work together in those things. I think hiddenness is painful. And when we try to hide or dismiss something, it gains power. And there is no doubt that you here at Providence, that we here at Providence, have experienced a great deal of pain over the last year. What does it mean to go forward in the lavish grace of God with love and respect? We don't have to understand it all, and there are times when we say, I don't understand why so-and-so did that or said that or so on, but that we move beyond that into the lavish grace of God and say, God, you have a plan and a purpose, and we'd like to participate in that. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about participating in the plan that you've created for the fullness of time, which is right now, that, that we become part of that ship full of people who are moving in the same direction, and that we l- begin to love, and that we don't become like the people of Ephesus, where John has to warn them and say, you have left the way that you loved at first. And what does it mean to have that first love for each other, for you, and for the world around us? We invite your power, your presence, your protection on us this week as we begin to think about this passage of Scripture and the passage coming as we allow your Spirit to speak to our hearts. Help us to see that we're part of family and the family of God. I pray for healing and strength and your embrace as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Our leadership meeting, which I echo Brent in saying, uh, it was good and exciting. We discussed uh, Chris and Naomi's uh, commissioning today. Brent asked me to go ahead with that, so I'm going to invite Chris and Naomi and their family to come forward. Brent, Rita, you want to mind coming up? <clears throat> right here, okay? I don't know how you normally do these things, so um, we'll just do it. Don, you're welcome to join us if you want to. I have uh, one question I'm going to ask you two. Um, considering the voice of the church, are you two, Chris and Naomi, are you willing to commit your, your gifts, your time, and your resources as, as you have them available to the life of the church here at Providence Christian Fellowship? And to the church here at Providence, um, your brothers and sisters, are you willing to support and encourage Chris and Naomi in the call that you've placed on their lives to be elders of discipleship? If you, would, um, if you can do that, please stand. And the rest of you can stand as well. Family is here to support them. Uh, Bert and Mary, just come on up too. Um, Brent, move on in. Just going to pray and... Uh, Well, Lord Jesus, uh, this has happened thousands and thousands of times over the life of the church as people have recognized the gifts, the calling that you've placed on people's lives. And today the church here at Providence is recognizing the calling that you've placed on Chris and Naomi's life as elder of discipleship. 
to give, to lead, and to help guide the life of the church as we move forward. Thank you for their lives, for the very special and specific gifts that you have put into them, how that you, in, in your time, said, this is my son and my daughter, and I place in them very special gifts. I pray that you would bless them for their efforts, their work, and I pray that you would repay them. We never can repay them for what they give, so you repay them, Jesus, with your blessing and your love and your means. And I pray for the church here. I pray that as we together look forward, I pray that we would be accountable, empowered, and engaged. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.